All right, well, this morning we are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel again. And uh, like Kellen said, we are going to see uh, God appoint in the nation, uh, be clued in on what God has been doing up to this point. Uh, but to start off, I wanted to ask you this question. Have you ever had the privilege of ordering a faulty product? You pull the pieces out of the box and the glass is cracked or a piece of plastic is broken or something. Or, or maybe you're uh, three quarters of the way done with one of those prefab pieces of furniture. You're almost there and you get to the very end and you realize there's a critical piece that's missing. And so you circle back and assume that you're part of the problem, and, or maybe you don't, but eventually you've got to go back and see, did I miss a step? Did I use things, all the pieces right? No, I've done it correctly. And you come to that realization that weeks ago or months ago or years ago, that man or woman on that factory uh, production line forgot to drop in the critical screw or the critical piece that you needed, and so now that has come down the line, and you are the recipient of that neglect. Uh, it would be like that, that feeling on a grand scale, like purchasing a home, and then maybe a month in, you realize that the, the foundation is cracked. There's something desperately wrong with the structure of the house. Israel is going to be, in this chapter and in this section of 1 Samuel, they're obviously laying the foundation of what their life as a nation is going to be. And they're, they're leveling the ground, they're getting the forms in place, they're getting ready to pour the concrete, you could say, for future generations who are going to be coming uh, to Israel. And last week we saw that God had this sovereign goodness to him, right? When he oversaw the appointment of this prince, he was still the king, but he oversaw the appointment of this prince named Saul. Israel had complained that God wasn't doing his king job very well, and so they wanted a replacement. Well, God had far bigger plans than Israel could imagine, and so God graciously steered Israel in the way that he wanted them to go, and all the while, Israel was sitting in his lap, like pretending to be driving the whole time. One of the ways that God, if you remember, demonstrated his grace in that section was how he spoke to Saul. He spoke to him incrementally and privately about this future job. He kind of slowly revealed what was going to happen. Because when Saul started out, he wasn't looking to become king. Remember what he's looking? He was looking for donkeys, his dad's donkeys specifically, and ends up with this oil on his head and being told that he's going to be the future king of Israel. And so God kind of helped him slowly a bite and chew and swallow this news over a period of time. Uh, but there's going to be a breaking point to that because uh, kings can't be uh, private citizens, right? They're very public figures. And so somehow, some way, this little secret that Saul and Samuel have is going to get out. If you remember, Saul was a very striking figure. He was uh, head and shoulders taller than anyone else is what it, the text just keeps saying. But it makes you wonder, what is this kingdom really going to look like, right? What, is, uh, how, what kind of job is Israel and Saul going to do when they lay this foundation? What is that going to look like? So that's what we're going to read and see uh, some, some textual clues in 
1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. You can go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's Word if you're able to, and I'll, I'll read this for us. That's again 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's fine. Go ahead and grab one in the lobby, and you can uh, borrow that and steal that from us later. That would be fine. Okay, here's what God's Word says to us this morning. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all, from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him in all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. You can be seated. So how does it go when they try to lay the foundation for this future kingship? Well, our answer is the point of this text this morning. It's uh, in your little insert there. It's this. God establishes Israel's long-desired kingship and reveals that it's built on a faulty foundation. God establishes Israel's long-desired kingship and reveals that it's built on a faulty foundation. We see that happening in three different sections here. Uh, first, in verses 17 through 19, we see that, that this kingdom is founded in unnecessary rebellion. Then in 20 to 25, uh, we see that God's choice goes missing. He's gone missing. And then there's this mixed reaction at the end that we're going to see. So let's start off by looking at just uh, how it was founded on this unnecessary rebellion in verses 17 to 19. If you're a carpenter out there, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I likely am. Uh, but one of the first critical steps to pouring a foundation is making sure that everything's going to be level, right? You've got to do the work. You've got to set things in place so that that pad is flat and is secure, and every other step in the process can go perfectly, but if that step goes wrong, 
everything else is wrong, right? Now, what kind of steps have led Israel to this point of wanting to appoint a king? You remember what motivated this switchover? Well, Samuel is going to remind them when he gathers them all together in verses 17 to 19. We're reminded that this kingship is founded on unlevel or uneven ground. Things are off from the very start, you could say, because if you remember, the motivation for appointing a king was that they would be like the, the nations around them. Remember that? We want to be like them. So we see in these verses that this rebellion is really unnecessary. It says in verse 17, you know, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. That Mizpah was one of the stops on his little teaching circuit that he did throughout Israel uh, to help instruct the people about the law and about uh, all that God wanted them to know. And this place is actually the same place from chapter 7 earlier that we looked at when the people admitted their sin to Samuel. Uh, Samuel said at that point, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And that's where God brought about that amazing rescue operation. Do you remember when the, he thundered against the Philistines and they built that Ebenezer that says that represented till the statement, till now the Lord has helped us. That all happened in the area of Mizpah. And so we have this scene of these casting of lots and this uh, acknowledging of, of this king in, in, in our section, but it kind of reminds us of earlier in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7, the people are gathered before the Lord and they cast lots, but they do it to find out who is to blame for the judgment that they've been receiving against the Lord. Someone stole some stuff. And so they gather all Israel, and they go through the process of casting lots, which is kind of a way of narrowing down a group to one person. And the man named Achan is guilty. Do you remember that? So when you, when you take all these pieces together, and you look at it, you, you, have a, you have some overtones of judgment here. We're at Mitzpah, this place where God delivered them, and they confess their sin. They have this casting of lots, and this gather everybody at Mitzpah kind of tone. And you're thinking... I think there's some judgment involved in here. And then you can confirm it by the first words that Samuel says. When they all get together, and thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and he lays out this rebuke. Where God says, I got you out of Egypt. I protected you when the Egyptians chased you down. And then every other nation that threatened you, I delivered you or I didn't deliver you because I had something better in mind. Every time I did what was right by you. And so he rebukes them. And it was just, if you just compare the resumes of God and Saul at this point, God extracts probably a million people from the most powerful ruler who did everything he could to keep them in slavery. They chased him to the edge of an ocean and he buried their entire army in the sea. And he keeps them alive in the desert. And every other threat that came, God dealt with. And whether he delivered them point blank in that moment, or whether it was later through sanctifying and purifying them, he loved them every time. That's God's resume. What's Saul's resume at this point? So far, we know that Saul has a hard time finding donkeys, and he's tall. 
And it's, his resume gets worse after the section that we have today. That's, that's what we're comparing. The Savior competition. Who wins out? That's why Samuel starts this whole proceeding with, the, with these verses. Because they're rejecting a proven Savior. And he wants to make that very clear. He says in verse 19, But today you have rejected your God. God's track record shows how unnecessary a king, a human king, is. And then he goes on to describe God as the one who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. That seems like it would be sufficient. Seems like that Savior should be enough for them. If he can really do that, and he really is that way. This is why, in the people's minds, this feels more like a scene of judgment to them. They're there at Mizpah, which brings back some memories. They're casting lots, and then Samuel says this, and I wonder if the tone in the crowd is, uh-oh. What is God going to do? This is the first faulty sign of Israel's foundation for this kingship. They start off on this unlevel ground. Their, their motivation for this is born out of distrust, not trust. You could call this a rebound relationship. But they had a perfect king to start with. And so it just looks absurd. So that's the first crack in the foundation we see. But we also see in verses 20 to 25... That God's chosen one goes missing. And this, again, shows another big crack in the foundation of the kingship that Israel is going to have. They go through this process of casting lots. Like I said, it's a simple way of narrowing things down to find out who it is that God has chosen to do this. But it's really gracious of God to do this. Because Samuel and Saul could go to the people and say, hey, God spoke to us. And guess what? Saul's the king. Or they could go through this process that was widely accepted as a way to discern the will of God. And God says, I want to make sure that the people understand that, that this is my hand in this, and Saul has ended up in this position by my instruction. And so he sets up the casting of lots. He's going to go public with this, with this decision he's made. And so there it happens. It goes down to Benjamin, the tribe and the, the Matrite clan, and then Kish's son. And this is the climax of the text. It's slowly building, narrowing, 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 and all of a sudden, we have in view who this king is. Israel has complained, and God has relented. Israel is gathered in this sober and formal setting. God has chosen this king who isn't even there. That is a picture that's, that's teaching things, isn't it? They look for him and they can't find him. Imagine the awkwardness and the embarrassment of this moment. Like, right, you guys checked the bathrooms, right? Like, hey, Kish, where did you see him last? And, and what's, what's going on? What, what does he look like? And, and, okay, everybody spread out and everyone take a little... I mean, you can imagine, we don't have a... We finally have a king, but we don't have a king. Where did he go? This is a very telling indication of what kind of kingdom Saul is going to have. 
Israel's God replacement, their hope of being modern and relevant, literally cannot be found. He's absent that day. I mean, just imagine what this would mean in a modern day. It's a big deal of the State of the Union stuff that's been going on. And imagine it's in the chamber of the House of Representatives, right, that this all occurs. And so imagine it comes time to State of the Union speech, and the crier calls out, the President of the United States of America. And everyone claps, they kick open the double doors. Nobody. And they keep clapping, and it's kind of awkward, and they're like, well, he must have tripped, or nothing. The clapping kind of slows down. People start looking around, getting nervous. Where'd he go? <laughs> it's not a moment you expect Saul to not be there, right? So Israel's king can't even be relied upon to show up for the first day of work. He's unavailable from the start. And I wonder if Israel in that moment felt kind of this vulnerability of what have we done? Are the Philistines around? (laughs) We're kingless. And what a contrast to the God who, quote, saves you from all your calamities and distresses. God is surprisingly present in chapter 10, and Saul is nowhere to be found. And how do they end up finding him? Look at verse 22. This is hilarious. So they inquired again of the Lord. (laughs) God, what would you do with our king? Is there a man still to come? Like, is a a new guy going to show up, or is is this like a future generation thing? Like, there's a kid waiting in the wings. We've got to wait a little longer. What is going on? Is there someone still to come? And the, I, wish, I wish we could hear the tone of voice when in verse 22 the Lord responds. It says, and the Lord said, behold, um, he's hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> Nobody knows what's happening but the Lord. The one they want to replace. He says, well, you might want to go over and look by the luggage. He's over there. <laughs> just imagine what that would have been like. I just, so funny. He's hiding behind the luggage. So why is Saul hiding? Some people want to give Saul all these noble motives, like, oh, he's, he's humble, and it's just the weight of the, I, I don't buy that at all. I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's a clear sign from the text that he's afraid, right? He wasn't willing to share the news with his uncle. Remember that in last week's text? And this scene that kind of smacks of judgment, and he is the appointed God alternative. Imagine being an appointed alternative to God. How badly you don't want that job, right? Now, when he, he gets used to the idea of power, we know that because at the end of his life, he's doing all that he can to hold on to it. But right now, he's just afraid and scared, and I want nothing to do with this. And look at what happens even after that. Verse 23, then they ran and took him from there. <laughs> okay, you're our king. Get over here. And when he stood among the people, I love this. He was taller than any of the people. What is with the height thing? 
It just keeps coming up, but I, I think it's this um, juxtaposition of what is valuable to God and what's valuable to men. Because what do they do? They say, what are you doing hiding in the luggage? You're a king. How dare you? No, they say, long live the king. Insanity. We confuse what is important so easily, don't we? This is a masterful scene to, to describe the foolishness of what it of what we do when we replace God with something else. God is powerfully present. He's noticeably present. He's steering the proceedings. He knows exactly where Saul is, and Saul can't be found. This is that second clear scene that this kingship is not off to a good start. This is a faulty foundation. This is cracked. Our final paragraph here in uh, verse 25 through 27 uh, shows this kind of mixed reaction. We have verse 25, which says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. This is almost assuredly a retelling of what, uh, what Moses says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, where he actually lays out, when you appoint a king, make sure these things are true of him. So it basically says he needs to be a native Israelite and not greedy for stuff or wives or anything that could lead them back to Egypt and kind of lays that out. It's likely what Samuel referred to is referring back to the law in Deuteronomy 17. One of the other requirements in Deuteronomy 17 is that this king would write out a copy of the law for himself so that it would be with him and he would consult it and he would learn to fear the Lord. So that's likely what's going on in verse 25. But notice that that these are, this king is still under the authority of the Lord. This is an interesting principle, just in terms of government and kingship and all these things, that, that there are still instructions that the king is to fall under the authority of God. But then in verses 26 and 27, we see an interesting uh, thing. Samuel tells all the people to go home and and then we see this contrast, this different reaction, where God actually touches the heart of some courageous people who will protect and support Saul. How, what a gracious thing to do for this newly appointed king. No matter how faulty the motivations were for doing this, God is going to make sure that he's all right. It makes you wonder, if God hadn't touched their hearts, would Saul have had any support going back to Gibeah? So that's kind of the one reaction, which is kind of God-induced, you could say. But then you have these worthless fellows, these bottom-rungers, these low-life guys in Israel who kind of ditch the, the normal proceedings of presenting a gift to their new king. And they say, ah, phooey, who is this guy? How can this man save us, they say. And it's in the voice of those scoundrels that this text is given voice. That's actually the point. Israel is enamored with this tall, impressive king when it's actually the lowlifes low lives of the situation. They have the best read of what's going on. There's no way this is going to work out. This guy isn't the answer. And those beggars or those people who are kind of the dregs of society in this scene are exactly right. Saul can't save them. So, even in the honeymoon period, 
of this newly appointed king. And there's people going, this is, this is not going to pan out well. And so we see this foundation is cracked because of the motivations that drove them to do this because of what happens in this whole odd scene where Saul goes missing, and even in the reaction of the people, they can tell this, this foundation is off, it's unlevel, it's cracked. So the question is now, how does it help us to know that the kingship of Saul had a cracked foundation? Right? That's a fair question. How does the truth touch down into our lives uh, as followers of Jesus You can kind of understand what the text is doing, but then how does that import? Well, I'd say that Saul is a contrast agent. A contrast agent. In medical speak, a contrast agent is, according to Wikipedia, sorry for you medical professionals out there, uh, a contrast agent is the iodine or like barium sulfate or that stuff that uh, medical professionals inject into our body in order to see other things. It's the stuff that kind of attaches or grips to the organs or the blood vessels or whatever it is that that the people behind the screen really want to see. That's what a contrast agent is. They're not the point. What they're revealing is the point. See what I'm saying? That's really what's going on in this this scene. Saul is a contrast agent. Saul is not the point. It's, It's what Saul is drawing attention to that's the point. Now, to show you this, I think we need to step back and just kind of look at the larger storyline of the Bible and, and notice how Saul kind of fits in, okay? So back, back in Genesis 17, do you remember? Abraham was promised that kings would come from him and from his lineage. Later on in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is told that it's going to be Judah and the tribe of Judah that's going to be the source of this scepter, of this king that's going to come. If you keep going in 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, after Saul, you have David, and it's King David who is promised in 2 Samuel 7, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Massive promise to King David. And that promise kind of echoes down the hallways of the Old Testament in the, in the book of Isaiah when it says in Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is this expectation that that from the descendants of Abraham will come a king from the tribe of Judah through the line of David who will come and actually bring about the kingdom that's desired and is actually wanted and needed. And Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. And so hundreds of years later, Luke describes Joseph and Mary traveling to the city of David because he was of the house and lineage of David. And Jesus is born and grows up and is called the son of David. And after he resurrects from the dead, the apostles connect the dots for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. And they say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet 
and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In Revelation 5, Toward the end of human history, John is weeping because no one has the authority to open the scrolls and open the seals and bring about this final judgment that needs to happen. Until one of the elders says in verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals, referring to Jesus. So when Saul comes on the scene and there's this massive line of promise all throughout the Bible that points to one who would come, it's clearly not Saul. And that's the point. He's an anti-type. He's a negative example. He's one that causes us to long for the one who's actually king, who can actually bring about change. See, the reason that the kingship of Israel was doomed to fail was not because Israel put too much stock in the height of their king. It wasn't only because Saul was their God alternative or that he, wasn't, he was hiding behind luggage. It's because no ordinary human being can usher in the kind of kingdom that each of us longs for. We want more than what merely human beings and human governments can provide. The answer to those worthless guys' questions, how can this man save us, is clearly he can't. But ultimately, the answer to the Israelites' question, is there a man still to come, is yes, there is, and his name is Jesus. See, Saul was the kind of king that Israel wanted, but his kingdom didn't last. You know, they chanted, long live the king, but he didn't. And Jesus came and was mocked for his claims to be a king. Despite all the evidence contrary, and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he brought the kingdom that was actually needed. See the irony in that? The king we wanted didn't do it, and the king we rejected did it. Praise God that he gives us the king we needed, not the king that we asked for. You know, this week was one of those weeks when I was just reminded how uncertain and how unpredictable the world is. There's just a nagging kind of grief in me this week, a kind of a, a cyclical sighing that was just praying, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Until you come. Ever have those weeks? God is just moving and shaking and he's turning over a lot of different environments in my life that's both painful and necessary, sad and inevitable, disturbing and yet purposeful. And I'm convinced that he's aerating the soil so that I'll be more fruitful over the long haul. But breaking up that dirt is not easy and poking and prodding. It hurts and it stinks a lot of the time and life is hard. 
Maybe you can relate to that. This last week, when you just see cracks in the foundation of the kingdom of this world all over the place. But it's against that dark backdrop that the certainty of our coming king shines, isn't it? To remember that this isn't all that there is. The sufficiency of Jesus gives hope in the midst of Saul's insufficient kingdom and our insufficient kingdom. I mean, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you realize that your hopes for lasting peace and certainty are grounded in something that's real and actual and historical? Your hopes are grounded in something that's true. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, and your hopes are limited to the scope of the kingdom of this world, maybe you felt even this week that those things are so shallow. And that you have desires that even if you had everything you wanted, you would never, ever feel satisfied in. Carolyn Cobb says this kind of hope so well in her song, All is Vanity, when she says, If there is restlessness, there must be rest. If there is hunger, there must be fullness. This longing that we have, this desire that we have, this hunger that we have for the kingdom of God has an actual historical reality that we can remember and be encouraged by when it's difficult. You see, the story of this cracked kingdom, this Saul-like kingdom, is good news because it reminds us that there is a, quote, city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's what Hebrews 11.10 says. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail, right, against the church, that he will build it until it's certain and sure, and it will do what he desires. It's not like the kingdom of Saul. And so Saul is just a reminder. He's a, he's a contrast agent for remembering the coming kingdom of Jesus and the hope that we have in that. So as we look at this kingdom and this cracked foundation, I want to ask you to ponder two questions this week. Or one of the two. I'll leave it up to you. First one is this. Are there ways that you are hoping in the kingdom of this world to do what it cannot do? Are there ways that you are hoping in the kingdom of this world to do what it cannot do? Are you expecting the one relationship to meet all your needs? Are you hoping that a job will give you the purpose that you seek? Are you banking everything on a political party or a piece of legislation or the overturning of some court case? Are you looking to health alternatives as your source of joy? Are there ways that you're hoping in a kingdom that, that the kingdom of this earth cannot do? That's my first question. That one will take time. The second one is this. How does Jesus' coming kingdom 
alleviate your fears and strengthen your faith in the midst of trial? How does Jesus' coming kingdom alleviate your fears and strengthen your faith in the midst of trial? Maybe you're just struggling to wait and you're sick of waiting for whatever it is, for the kid to get it through their head, for the house to sell, for the habit to break. Knowing that there is a coming kingdom that will resolve those things, I think will insert hope into that situation in a different way that might actually change it. Are you struggling to believe that God is capable of, quote, saving you from all your calamities and your distresses? What a wonderful thing to pray that the Holy Spirit would persuade us that God is able to save us from all our calamities and all our distresses. We're good at at relying on God for the big ones because we're kind of forced to. But could the Holy Spirit stir in us and, and cause in us a reliance on him that's new because of that description of him in our text? Maybe you're just struggling to believe that he's allowing some distresses for your good. And you can't see how it's good. Have you been specific with the hope of Jesus' return? Is it just kind of this nebulous thing that, yes, one day and it's going to happen? And, or have you drilled down into that to actually mine out specific hopes that the scriptures give us about that return and about his coming kingdom? Remember, You'll be with your Lord face to face. Remember that you will give an accounting to him and others will too. Remember that you'll be fully emotionally and physically healed in a resurrection body by him. Remember the new Jerusalem will have no flaws. The foundation will be sure. Remember, the gates of hell will not be able to defend itself against the advancing attack of the church. Remember that pain and suffering and disease and death, all those things have expiration dates. All of them. Remember that righteousness will reign and injustice will be extinguished. You see, that knowing that that specific hope is in the Scripture helps you when when you're being treated unfairly. It does. It inserts hope into our faith. God, I know this is not going unrecognized. This is not going unseen. One day, righteousness will reign. Remember that endless life and health and provision and joy will be yours forever. We will look back on the 85 years like it's nothing. It's hard to believe that now. But we consider that the massive inheritance that awaits us, that's ahead, it makes the 85 plus years or whatever God gives you a little more tolerable. You can fix your eyes on that hope. So, 
The two questions are, are there ways that you're hoping in the kingdom of this world to do what it cannot do? And second, how does Jesus' coming kingdom alleviate your fears and strengthen your faith in the midst of trial? So this week, if you just want an image to, to wrap up, when you see cracks in the foundation of the kingdom of this world, remember that there's a better one coming. Those are actually built-in reminders of the hope that awaits us. I'm done a lot sooner than normal. So that's my gift to you. <laughs> so, okay, calm down. Sorry. No, just kidding. Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we're going to sing one last song, okay? And we'll uh, have a benediction. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. So good to us. We have plans to bring about our own kingdoms that you wreck. And we thank you for that, God. We are so short-sighted and we are so small and we have such pathetic goals. But you, God, have invited us into the mission that the triune God is on to, to bring glory to his name and to, to unite all things in the, in the person and the, for the glory of Jesus Christ. All creation was made for that purpose. And you've invited us into that significant of a thing that we could walk with you and trust you and learn to rely on you and we can't see six inches in front of our nose. God, forgive us for our God alternatives. Help us to see them, not just when they fail us, but before they fail us. Help us to notice ways that we're, we're thinking and operating in the flesh that are not of faith, that cannot please you because they, they put way too much trust in ourselves or in another person. Forgive us for those things, God. Surface them, bring them to our minds. And God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who ran the race perfectly and died and rose again and is coming again. Help us to fix our eyes on the, the certainty of the coming kingdom so that God, the small things, the irritations, the, the cracks that we see all over the place would just be reminders of what lies ahead for us. You have given us an inheritance, Father, at the cost of the life of your Son. This is something you intend to give us because you've paid a great cost. And so help us, God, to, to leverage that inheritance, to leverage that hope when we're hopeless and struggling and we can't see. And finally, God, we thank you that you are bringing a kingdom with no cracks at all. And God, some days that's all that we have to hold on to. But God, I thank you that we have something on those days that many people in this life do not. Teach us the size and the, the breadth and the width and the depth of that inheritance. 
impress it upon our hearts. Help us to walk by faith through difficulty and through trial, knowing that that inheritance is sure and is sealed by the Holy Spirit. We trust you. We love you. We need your help to do this. And so we we end this time of teaching just relying on you and asking uh, for you to meet our need. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.